Um, as Brian said, my name is Tamara, and it's really lovely to be with you this evening. Um, I'm currently a second year student at the university um, studying primary education. Yeah, um, and I'm Sophie. Um, I'm also a student at the university uh, second year, and I study psychology and child development. Um, we're really excited to have Dr. James um, Cretney with us today. Some of you may know him. Um, he is the chief executive at Marwell Zoo. And he will, we will be discussing this evening whether there is a climate crisis, um, what happened to God's good earth, um, and has the human lifestyle really ruined the world? Yeah, this is to um, follow on from what we talked about last week, um, where we had Sir Ian Prance come speak to us, um, who is the former uh, director of Kew Gardens, um, and he explored if there is a climate crisis um, and what we should do about that. Um, James is the chief executive of Marwell Wildlife, um, which is the conservation charity which runs Marwell Zoo. Um, Marwell's conservation interests support um, the restoration of nature um, in the UK, uh, Africa, and Central Asia. Um, with a real emphasis on ecosystem restoration. Um, clearly a very busy guy, James. You're also um, a council member of the Wales Association for Zoos and Aquarium, and he chairs the Finance, uh, the finance Committee. Um, he is also the director of the Enterprise um, M3 Local Economic Partnership, which uh, works to devote economic growth at the regional level. Um, after leaving school, James was um, commissioned into the British Army and spent seven years focusing on equine welfare um, before arriving at Marwell. Um, his PhD focused on the relationship between knowledge sharing and organisational advantage and innovation. Yeah, just to um, introduce you to the rest of the congregation, we've got some questions to ask you, um, just to, so we can get to know you a bit better. Um, so what is your favourite animal at Marwell Zoo? <laughs> okay. um, I imagine it's probably a giraffe. A giraffe? Because they are really beautiful, beautiful animals. Yeah. Pretty, and when they, when they walk, they, when they, they, they move with a glide, a lovely gait, and they're just, they sail across a, a big space, and they're wonderful to watch. Nice. Yeah. That's a good answer. Um, and then a slightly more fun one. Um, if you were an animal at the zoo, which one would you be and why? I think I'd probably be a white rhino because um, uh, you know, rhino are endangered, as you know. Well, some types, some types of rhino are endangered, but they're still poached a great deal. And if you are a rhino at Marwell, you're probably quite safe. I'll just pray for you, James, before you begin. Uh, dear Lord Jesus, I thank you that we've been able to gather here this evening. Um, I thank you for James and um, the life that he leads um, and for all of the um, work that he's put into this talk. And I pray that um, you will speak through him this evening and that his, the Holy Spirit will work through him. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much indeed. I'm just going to pour a glass of water. There we go. This is a show of hands. It'd be useful to see who was, who wasn't here last week. Great. Okay. So it looked about half and half actually. So we'll do a little recap of what we did. Uh, had last. Whoopsie Daisy. That's the wrong one. <laughs> there we go. So last week we had a real treat. We had Sir Gillian Prance here talking to us about climate. Uh, change is there a climate crisis and he gave us a real in-depth understanding of the science that's going on if you weren't there last week it doesn't matter because I'm going to recap about that very briefly 
And then, um, I have to say, it was interesting hearing Brian talk about what I meant to be speaking about today. Um, hopefully this will be the same thing. Um, I'm going to talk about uh, has lifestyle really uh, ruined the world. I'm going to give you some things to think about there. And that's my aim today. If you can just think, if we can just start thinking about other aspects which go on to perhaps take us away necessarily from carbon and climate, but other um, biological aspects or things that are happening on the ground at the moment which are causing ruin at the moment. So the first slide I'm going to show you, you've seen already, and it's this chap here. Um, now, I was hoping there was going to be some doctors here today because I gather there's a, a law called Sutton's Law. And Sutton's Law is named after this chap. He's not responsible for climate change, but he's a bank robber. His name's Willie Sutton, and he was the most prolific bank robber in American history. This guy loved robbing banks, more than the actual taking of money. He got a thrill out of robbing banks. And when he wasn't robbing banks, he was usually escaping from prison, because he was arrested a few times, but he was very good at getting out as well. He was quite a character. And somebody said to him, hey, Willie, why do you like robbing banks? And he said, it's because that's where they keep the money. And the point is, we have Sutton's Law, because it's the rule of the blinking obvious. And medical students, I'm told, are taught that when you're doing a diagnosis, sometimes the obvious is what you need to do. So to answer the question about climate crisis, is there one and why, the answer is yes. It's because we keep putting carbon in the atmosphere. It's as simple as that. I know there is complexity around it, and there are other things we'll talk about, but really it, it is quite simple. If I go back to that earlier slide there, sorry, Colebrookdale, that's when we need to start thinking about when this all kicked off. 1760, we realized if you took really, really super hot water and put one degree of energy extra into it in terms of temperature, you had steam. And from steam, we powered, as you know, the Industrial Revolution. It started with us in Colebrookdale, ironically now underwater because of climate change. But from that, we managed to really export around the world. We mechanized the world, we industrialized the world, and we did that because we were able to exploit services, goods, capital, and create great things. We created great wealth. We became super wealthy on the back of that, and we were an industrialized nation, the first one, really. Look at the map, it was pink. We had the British Empire, and then onwards, and we were doing really well. We became super, super wealthy. We led that industrial charge. And we're still doing it today. We're very, very effective at making stuff, creating stuff, and creating wealth. It's in our nature to do that. We like doing that. We prosper, and we share the benefits of those that make that stuff within those close communities. We still do those basic things, taking goods, services, capital, and exploiting them and creating wealth. And the reason why we're able to do that is because we're very, very effective operators. We're super brainy. We've got great big brains. And we're very good at manipulating the environments around us. We're the ultimate apex species. And we're fairly selfish with it. Yeah, we tend to do things that we think will benefit us. We have lots of motivators, some of them are based on greed, but we are very skillful and ingenious at colonizing areas and creating wealth and advantage for ourselves. That's what we do best. And you'd have seen, for those of you who are here last week, a graph like this. So Ian put this up. You don't need to be able to look at the numbers. All you need to do is see that the lines are going up. So we've got a red line there that shows the carbon in the atmosphere. 
the atmosphere has carbon in it and always has done. And you can see the, uh, the blue line there is the carbon that we are emitting out into the atmosphere. And you can see how it's gone along since the start of the Industrial Revolution and then it's just gone up and up and up and up and sailed up to absolutely astronomically high level. That is why we've got a problem at the moment. We're putting too much of these gases, carbon dioxide being one of them, it's a greenhouse gas, into the atmosphere. And just as a recap of what we mean by that whole aspect of the greenhouse effect, we're saying really that the planet, it's a wet planet, it's got water on it, we have water vapor, and when that's mixed with what scientists tell us are greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide, methane, carbon monoxide, mixed with water, it absorbs heat very, very effectively. What it then does is it reflects heat outwards, some of that heat goes back down to Earth. So the temperature goes up. It also creates a blanket around the Earth, which keeps that heat in. So we get polar caps melting, water level going up, and we start to affect these highly, highly delicate but powerful systems like weather around the world that gives rise to, to all the problems we're having with climate at the moment. So that's the first question, tick, I think. Simple, Sutton's law. That's the climate crisis issue, really. I'll come back to that in a little bit, but I want to really go on to the second point. That's where the meat of this evening I want to speak about. Has human lifestyle really ruined the world? And before we do that, or before I answer that, I think we have to get to the nub of what do we mean by ruined? For, 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 for people, the this, this selfish apex species I'm talking about, you know, ruined in, in terms of for who? Some people are clearly doing very well at the moment. Some people are enjoying their lives, others less so. So what are we ruining and who cares anyway? And I think to put a, the nub of it is around this aspect, biodiversity, life on Earth, okay? Nature, all those wonderful things that we are a part of, or were part of, and over time, slowly, particularly our increasingly urban lifestyles, where we live and how we live, we're moving away from nature. We are disconnected with nature. We understand biodiversity, that richness of life. We understand it less and less all the time. So what I'm posing tonight, how we're ruining it, what we're ruining, we are ruining this aspect of biodiversity. And one of the interests we've got at Marwell, again, the, the sort of lens that I'm looking through this all through, is that obviously Marwell is a uh, much known, uh, well-known zoo down the road, looked after by Marwell, a wildlife a conservation organization. Our organizational mission is the conservation of biodiversity and the Earth's natural resources. That's what we're interested in. We're interested in biodiversity, that wealth of life on Earth. And for us at the moment, because one of the things we're particularly interested in is uh, causes of extinction, it's interesting to note that whilst there have been five large, over, um, over, over time, five large mass extinctions, we're currently entering what scientists are terming a sixth extinction crisis. So we're starting to go into one now. And we know that because if you compare what's going on with the fossil records, Species are dying at between 1,000 and 10,000 times quicker than they should be. So species die or go extinct all the time. That's part of an evolutionary process. Stuff changes. Those that don't adapt quick enough fall by the wayside. Extinction is part of the deal. But at the moment, it's happening too quickly. And unlike all the other extinction crises we've had, this one is man-made. Can't blame it on meteor strikes or anything else. 
This is down to us. Stuff is going extinct at a remarkably alarming rate. So I just wanted to just go off piece a little bit here and say again, from a zoo point of view, Marwell, why are we interested in this? I, I find this really, really interesting. It's the evolution of zoos over the last couple of hundred years. And it was, just, it was a model put up by the director of Chicago Zoo in uh, about 1994, and it just plots the evolutionary path that zoos have taken from hundreds of years ago when they were literally menageries, collections of animals. We know that the early kings of England had menageries at the Tower of London. They collected animals, or they were given them, and it was a soft power, really. You could show off to all the other noblemen what you've got. Uh, and then over a period of time, these zoological collections became public, and they were of great value because people couldn't see this stuff on TV. There was no TV. So to be able to go along and see a huge spotted cat or a prehistoric-looking creature with a horn coming out of, its, out of its forehead would have been absolutely staggering. It would have been amazing. So we had these zoos. And at this stage, we've moved from having um, uh, taxonomic uh, collections where people were just interested in particular species by the end of last uh, century, we're moving on to really the, uh, the, the scientific output of zoos. People are interested in the uh, adaptive biology of creatures. They wanted to understand their ecology. And if you take that forward to today, the kind of language that places like Marwell are using, those good zoos, the big, large zoos, the international ones, we're very much interested in, in the environmental aspect of, uh, of what's going on. We're interested in ecosystems, we're interested in landscapes, and we're interested in those areas that the species live in and the causes of uh, their decline. That's the kind of language we're using at the moment. The idea of, of ecosystems in particular, so you can think about that. So what I want to share with you now, really, are some of the main drivers, if you like, which are we're using at Marwell to focus our attention when we start looking at how we're ruining the world, this idea of biodiversity loss. And climate change, is all, as we've already mentioned, is certainly one of them. So we are very interested in climate change. Uh, we're also interested in the distribution of wealth. Now, that's interesting from a point of view of what we're, what we're here today, really, for at Christchurch. It's also a point that came up yesterday, uh, last week, rather, when Sir Gillian was, was talking to us. People talked about the issue of poverty and what's that actually got to do with society and how we're living on, the, on this world. Uh, the next point, feeding the 10 billion. Um, that's a really important thing, population. Sometimes it's a thorny issue, but it's, an, it's a, one we've got to talk about. Um, what have we got there? Insecurity. That's happening all the time. Look around us. Watch the news tonight. I bet it'll be mentioned. It's something that's very, very relevant. Emerging disease. That couldn't be more relevant right now, could it? But it's something that's really, really important. And the last one there, health and well-being. And why is that there? It's a very kind of topical, in vogue thing to talk about. But health and well-being is absolutely vital to this mix here. Because at the end of the day, it is all this stuff Back to this idea of how we're ruining the world for us, the apex species, talking rather selfishly. Why health and well-being is so important is because all these aspects are about living a quality of life for us all here. How do we live and how do we live as Christians, I guess, maintaining that quality of life? And the secret ingredient I'm going to give you now is nature. It sits squarely right bang in the middle. And we believe, if you look at nature, you look at biodiversity, if you look at how nature provides goods and services for us, 
that is the answer very much or the solution to all the ails that we have at the moment in society. So we know that we have been given a great gift. Yeah? The world is made, it, it is beautiful, and we have these vast, vast, but very delicate ecosystems. They provide, or rather they harbor, and they create wonderful forms of life, but they also give it to us as well. We know if we want it, well, clearly, if we want to eat, if we want our food, we want clean water, if we want clean air, or we want abundant air, if we want to have landscapes that can remove carbon, we've already talked about the fact we need to get rid of carbon, if we want to have carbon sequestered, if we want the amenity or the leisure value or the, or, of beautiful landscapes and recreational value of being out of the countryside, or green open spaces, we need nature. Everything we need comes from nature. It's not just giving us a quality of life, it is absolutely giving us life in the first place. And yet we know we don't look after it. So we over-harvest the sea, we exploit our food resources. We heard last week from Sir Ian that places like the lungs of the world, the Amazon, are being decimated, illegal logging, even uh, legal logging. We've got the Prime Minister of Brazil saying he's going to exploit what he believes is their natural resource, not the world's. Uh, we heard also from Sir Ian about the slash and burn farming that goes on in these areas. And it's starting to create a tipping point where what was once a, um, a great producer or a, or, a, or a place that would be a sink for carbon actually is in danger of absolutely tipping. Yeah? So we've got these huge, huge ecosystems, but at the end of the day, they are still very, very delicate. And over a period of time, you know, our relationship with them is beginning to destroy them. And we can extract resource, back to that idea of how clever and ingenious we are, we can extract resource at an industrial scale from the, from the Earth. We've all heard about three-planet living. We want to live like we do in the West. We need three planets to be able to provide the resource for the uh, consumption that we have leading our modern lifestyles. And very often we'll take, um, uh, we might not be taking coal out of the ground quite so much now in certain parts of the world, but certainly even new technologies, some of the rare earth elements that we want to have in mobile phones or high technology, they're coming out of some of the most fragile ecosystems in the world. Places like Congo, places like uh, Chile, Patagonia, and other parts of the world. So, and often, ironically, places where there are fragile life systems there anyway that we start to degrade even further because of our exploitative habit. Again, trying to fire our own um, uh, pursuit of um, economic progress. So one of the things I want us to think about is how everything is linked, you know, political, um, economically, socially, environmentally. All these aspects are interlinked. Yeah, we live such complicated lives now. One of the points of the whole um, coronavirus is that we can't tell, or manufacturing industry doesn't know where its various um, you know, supply chains come from. Everything now is so interwoven. It's all so, uh, so complex. Um, okay, so climate change. Let's kick off with that first of the six there. I think the debate now as to is there man-made climate change happening or not, it's, it's probably over now, I hope it is. Um, if, if, it's, uh, if, if you're in any doubt, look out the window. Um, we know that it, it's creating havoc 
around the world at the moment. Uh, melting ice caps, volatile weather, water in the wrong place. Um, it's going to cost apparently 2.8 trillion, it's about 3% of global GDP if you want to fix the problem. By 2030, the annual cost, the annual bill for mitigating climate change is going to cost about $1.5 trillion a year. It's absolutely enormous. That is the size of the problem. That's why COP21, the UN tried to get, as Ian told us last week, industrialized countries to limit temperature rise by two degrees of pre-industrial levels. The trouble is we've already gone past one degree of that. So the chances, I would imagine, of us getting it fixed are, are pretty slim. And the trouble with things like this, it ruins livelihoods, it ruins businesses, ruins people around the world, people lose their lives to it. It causes such destruction, it causes absolutely misery. And of course, water is in the wrong place. We're flooded one minute, we have a hosepipe ban the next. And we're told by the Environment Agency we need to reduce our water consumption. Yeah, we're taking too much water. We use too much water all the time. Our, our industrial processes are vast. I read the other day for a normal cheap white T-shirt that takes three years drinking water. Yeah, wear it for six months and then throw it away. It's crazy. Okay, what have we got next? Yeah, so distribution of the wealth. And this comes on two levels, really, both within a developed economy, like um, uh, uh, here we are in London. If you Google this, you'll see any major capital of the world. Haves and have-nots, eat the rich. Very ugly, the political, the cultural, the societal uh, rift between people that have money and people that don't. From a geopolitical point of view, um, the point there is that countries like ourselves, as I mentioned earlier with the Colebrookdale example, you know, we have advanced our prosperity on the back of the industrial revolution that we had. We've got rich and we've benefited essentially from all that cheap energy and power, the things that we had at our disposal then. There are developing countries now that want to play catch-up. The problem is we now know more than we knew 200 years ago, we're saying, well, we can't do that because of climate change. So we're trying to hold them as accountable as we're trying to hold ourselves, and they're saying, look, that's just not fair. We've got an emerging middle class, and by that I mean anybody who's on about $8 a day or more, that's trying to do the things that we did or are doing. They're bringing up families, and they want to have nice stuff, they want to eat meat, they want to drive a car, and they want to travel, they want to lead a better lifestyle themselves. And we're saying, we can't do that if it's going to create this kind of climate change. So they're saying, A, that's unfair, or they're saying, actually, and there's a very good argument, those that got rich off the back of these processes of the last two centuries need to give more to those that haven't got it. And also, there's an argument that we in the West, or the more advanced organized, sorry, the more advanced countries have, are better set up to mitigate through technology the effects of climate change as they catch up with us. Those that uh, are left behind, they just don't have those resources to be able to do that. So there's a huge disparity there which we need to think about. The other point of view is that growth is driven by consumption. Yeah, and, and we are marketed particularly hard on um, buying stuff. Uh, and the trouble is, again, a uh, picture of the digger, you know, uh, as we exploit the ground, often we're using places that are fragile. We're ripping up ecosystems that they themselves sequester carbon. And so we create a, even more climate cost uh, in our activity and what we do. 
This often creates pollution and in, in, a, in a desire to get rich and to develop again, there are often scant uh, rules around the control of that pollution and those, egos, those ecosystems degrade even further. So you see also between the rich and the poor, uh, you know, even within a developing country, uh, from an economic point of view, and bear in mind ec economies are linked, as we talk societally or politically, if you, give a, if you give a dollar to a poor family, they're likely to spend it because they need to. If you give a dollar to a rich family, they're more likely to save it. Now for organizations, or, or I keep saying organizations, forgive me, if I say at work, for countries to prosper, you do need money to move. But that polarization causes a drag on an economy. In the US economy, that's worth about $700 billion in the last two decades. So again, it is interesting to see how money changes and how it moves and how it affects economies as they try and develop. Okay. So the point here is uh, really about how we are trying to, uh, that point of view of a disparity between those that have and have not. Um, it's interesting to see that a quarter of the world's population tonight will go to bed uh, without access to electricity. Um, half of the world's economy are probably surviving on two and a half dollars a day. 800 million people will go to bed hungry and 750 million will go to bed without access to clean water. And again, if you're looking at individuals like this who are trying to make a livelihood or living in an area like this, it's not surprising the water becomes an issue. And then we get into a vicious circle whereby individuals are trying to uh, have a relationship with an ecosystem, but it's degrading all the time. So you get this pattern of winners and losers. Um, so for example, also half of Africa, half of Asia, half of Latin America, those populations have problems with waterborne disease. The reason why they have problems with waterborne disease is because they've got water capture areas, water ecosystems that provide that resource which are under threat or being compromised or being polluted. And so you get into a spiral of further decline. And again, it affects those who are most vulnerable, typically indigenous people, water, marginalized communities like this. And so the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. Problems with water I've just mentioned, the biggest source of protein to these people or people in developing countries tends to be fish, fish stock, plummeting down, people's intake of protein is getting less and less, again, because of the degraded uh, ecosystems in which they live in. So again, it's trying to make the link between ecosystem and this idea of poverty. So consumption, uh, it seems to me it's crazy, and uh, we'll touch on it later, this idea that uh, particularly we know, particularly those of us with children, that the pressure young people are under, under marketing, is phenomenal. I wonder how many luxury watches we really need, or do I really need the 200 million pound Bugatti? I still think I do, but you know, the reality is I just don't. But we seem to be you know, the merciless attack of uh, all the uh, uh, marketing that goes on all the time. It was interesting last week, somebody, I don't think they're here today, but one of the interviewers was doing a thesis on sustainable fashion, or sustainable clothing. Uh, 13 million tons of clothing goes to landfill each year. Clothing and textiles, 13 million tons. 
It's one of the worst recycled waste streams we have is clothing. It's a little surprising when we've got a, a clothing industry or a fashion industry which is predicated towards fast fashion. They want you to change your wardrobe every six months. And Oscar Wilde said that fashion was so bad, that's why they had to change it every six months. Yeah, Coco Chanel said that style was timeless. So the answer's got to be, if we could slow down fashion, that fashion cycle, you know, buy less, buy less often, but buy better. But let's not try and, uh, let's, let's slow down ch chucking 13 million tonnes into landfill every year. It's absolutely scandalous. Okay, feeding the 10 billion, that's a lot of mouths to feed. And the answer there, or, or rather where it's come from, is literally the, uh, the population of the world, world population. So modern man, been around for about 200,000 years. I've only been here for 50 of them. And yet in that time, the population has doubled. The time I've been on Earth, the population has doubled. I just don't know how that can happen. It's crazy. Now, you, can, you won't be able to read it all, but you can see the top line, high, protect, high projection, there's a middle line, there's a lower line. Worldwide, women are having less kids. Simple as that. Give people electricity. You want to stop the if you want to, best way for contraception is give people TV. Yeah? Get people electricity, population starts going down. More people are educated, particularly women. They don't want to have thousands of children. Educate people, birth rate comes down. Worldwide, birth rate is coming down. There will be a lag on the population, but we're told the population will probably stabilize around 10 billion. And that'll happen in about 50 years' time, or 2050, I think. So again, that is a lot of people we have got to feed. It puts huge pressure on the planet, because not only have we now got all these extra mouths to feed, but as I said already, we've got an emerging middle class that wants to get more out of the globe, out of the planet. So not only have we got more mouths to feed, but our tastes are changing as well, and we want to extract more. We want to have more of that Western-style three-planet living. So the pressure on the world is increasing, and the speed of everything we do, the pace of life, and the pressure we put on the earth is just getting more and more all the time. Change our relationship with uh, nature, and we start to exploit it more and more, and that's why we see further degradation of what's going on around us. We see that with the work we do at Marwell. We work with agro-pastoral uh, communities. This is out in Kenya. And very often, the uh, ambitions of the local people will conflict with uh, the biodiversity. So you'll see, we'll have an example whereby uh, people will put irrigation in, they'll put water in for all the right reasons, but that will be at the exclusion of local biodiversity. And because you've put the water in, and there's a culture of domestic cattle, you put extra pressure on the ground, the ground can't handle it, and it degrades even further. So the ecosystem which they're living in degrades even further and makes those poorer communities even poorer still. So again, you get that vicious circle of things going from bad to worse. Okay, insecurity. So again, at two levels, I think. We have environmental insecurity, and that's really about prediction. We heard last week from Sir Ian, when he used to go out to the Amazon, he was well used to seeing people planting seeds in the ground or, or bulbs or one thing or another because the generation to generation, people knew when to plant. They knew how the land would respond. They knew when the rains would come. But then recently, that's not happening anymore. Yeah? Nature's changing around us. 
And so they don't have the ability to predict what's happening. If you haven't got the prediction of what's happening, you haven't got control over your life. Yeah, so that affects people's health and well-being, how they can live, harvests fail, crops fail, livelihoods, people die, all those sort of things happen. Similarly, with, um, uh, on a geopolitical level, it can be terrorism, it can be uh, civil war, it can be ideology-based, but we see that when you've got your mind on survival, yeah, quality of life clearly goes down, the quality of the relationship you have with the ecosystem that's supporting you also suffers very, very quickly. This is on the Ethiopian border, by Kenya. You can exchange an AK-47 for a chicken. So if you can do that, it's not surprising that you're weaponizing the area and disputes that used to occur and used to be settled in traditional ways over land or one thing or another are now being mechanized. Also, you've then got the problem, you've got weapons in an area of wildlife. Yeah, poaching as a way out of poverty has always been with us. But now, of course, it can be done at an industrial level. So you've got problems with bushmeat, the decimation of animals in local areas. You've got hunting going on. You've got rich people coming in, what a trophy shoot. We've seen animals like Marwell works with the scimitar-horned oryx. Uh, it used to be in herds of, of literally hundreds of thousands. Now it's extinct. Went extinct in the late 60s, now kept alive by captive breeding. Went through hunting. One minute it was there, one minute it wasn't. Just through hunting. We've also seen with the collapse of places like Libya, the chaos that, can, that causes. When you've got literally a highway of guns, people smuggling, drugs, all that is evil going south to north up through that area. You've got oil companies that have security forces. Most of the time they're not doing much, so they're out shooting up the local wildlife. So it's a very, very bad mix. The wildlife's important even for what we're talking about now. Species, even at the species level, it's important because species are the building blocks of ecosystems. Every animal's got its place, yeah? These creatures, Desert engineers, yeah, they can work the land, and every animal has its place. And removing these starts to unhinge that, 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 that delicacy of the ecosystem. Okay. Final point on that. You know, we also know that bushmeat, hunting, one thing, but um, you know, the illegal wildlife trade, it's right up there in terms of size of problem with things like international drugs and oil. Uh, black marketing, that kind of thing, it's worth about 23 billion a year. It's a lot of money. Ivory, um, talked about rhinos earlier on, rhino horn, $40,000 a kilo. It's the second most expensive commodity on the earth. And uh, you know, that's what puts the thread on these animals. So very topically here, actually before we go on to that, so we see it again, as I say, all around us in Marwell. People, we go out to Kenya, people don't like the guns, they don't like the violence. They know it is destroying their habitat, and it's not uh, something they enjoy. And just an interesting thing here, we work with a lady here called Inrita, a uh, lady in the, in, the, in the green there. She, she was a shepherd, and she, her job was to throw stones at the lions at night time, which is with her, with her uh, animals. And she realized over a period of time there were less lions around to throw stones at, so she could see the, the biodiversity around her diminishing. Long story short, she ends up at Marwell doing a uh, master's degree 
in um, wildlife conservation. She's gone back out back to her um, homeland in Kenya, and she works with um, uh, local tribes. And what she's doing there, she has an army of uh, women volunteers, uh, and it's her army. And what they're doing really is 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 putting, uh, with help from Marwa, they're putting community scouts on the ground, and all the data the various data that we require for some of the work we're doing, the camera trapping, the surveying, all these bits and pieces. We give them technology to be able to record stuff. We employ scouts on the ground. And what we're doing there is we're, we're creating an, a local economy, if you like. This is working with nature, in this case, uh, around elephant corridors, uh, to try and create prosperity in the region. We're paying staff to do stuff. They're working with um, nature. They're getting ecotourism as a result of that. Because they're, they're on the ground patrolling animals, looking for data, the bad guys aren't appearing quite so often. And everyone's a winner. And people are feeling good about what they're doing. They're getting money so they can get their kids vaccinated. They can send them to school. Quality of life goes up. They don't need to poach quite so much. And life's changing very, very quickly. Really amazing to see. Okay, emerging disease. So this is a little bit back to uh, climate change. Climate change allows very often viruses to spread. So at Marwell, uh, as you can imagine, large, large animal stock, we didn't used to have to vaccinate for blue tongue. It's a Mediterranean disease, never saw it in the UK. We now have it in the UK. So we have to vaccinate. We can't do animal movement between the UK and other parts of the EU various times of the year. It's causing a headache. Not much more than a headache, but it is noteworthy, direct consequence of climate change. More seriously, if we get Crimea and Congo hemorrhagic fever, that is a tropical disease, it's tick-borne, and it's moved by birds. And historically, when they migrated, the tick would die. Well, it's now in the Mediterranean. Move from being a tropical disease to one that's not, not that far away. The symptoms and consequences of that are much the same as Ebola. So if we get that, it will make this thing, you know what this is, seem like a headache. And then, you know, um, coronavirus itself, possibly not an example of climate change, but certainly a zoonotic disease that's been able to jump that vector, be able to move species, we're told it's pangolins, I think, but I don't know if that's been confirmed. But it's moved into people, um, probably as a consequence of population, large urban population banging up against animals, probably poor welfare, poor husbandry, bad biosecurity. And it's moved around the planet very, very quickly because we're so hyper-connected. And it's spread. And emerging disease through zoonotic transfer is going to be something we really need to watch. So again, the work we do at Marwell with the University of Surrey, we look at health, we talk about one health, we look at animal health, human health, but also ecosystem health, because we know that all the roots go back to the ecosystems. Okay, hyperconnected. We are very hyperconnected. I mentioned early the pace of life at which we seem to move at. It's too fast. We put a lot of pressure on ourselves put a lot of pressure on young people. It's amazing that young people today are growing up, say in this country, they're growing up in a country which has never ever been as safe as it has, is, is today. 
They're growing up in a safe environment, yet they're growing up and they've never been more anxious than the young folk of today. Risk adverse, no risk, little risk out there, and yet they see risk around every corner. Something is clearly going wrong. We're moving too fast. I'd suggest it's a mismatch between our evolved biology and what we're meant to be doing and how we lead our lives today. We're just moving too fast. We are, as I mentioned with the uh, coronavirus, we're an urban species now. We've moved, the tipping point has moved from rural to urban. More people live in cities now than they do elsewhere. We live very close together. We've lost that relationship with nature. We've lost that, nature, that relationship with biodiversity. We understand it less. We seem to be driven more and more to urban living and the belief that technology is the answer to everything. So Ian last week said that he doubted that we'd be able to bioengineer our way out of uh, climate uh, uh, crisis. But that's where we are at the moment. And um, this mismatch you know, goes into how we live our lives in terms of what we consume. We know we've got a problem with obesity. Obesity is a big issue now. Uh, if you look at people around you, you know, forgive me, the population is changing shape. Uh, people are a different shape to how they used to be. Again, a mismatch to how our bodies have evolved and how we, and the types of food we eat today. So hundreds of thousands of years ago, if you could put on fat, you'd have been at a great advantage to someone who couldn't. Being selfish and being a glutton would have been quite good for survival. You'd have fought off the competition. You'd have put down fat for when the winter came. But some of these traits we no longer use. We certainly see that adaptive trait with um, other populations coming to the West and eating Western diets. Bodies cannot physically handle it. You look at the types of fat they're putting on. But this, is a, this is a crisis. It, it, it's a misery for people in terms of their health and well-being, their medical condition. So just another uh, aspect of uh, the health and well-being, how we're leading our lives, this idea about consumption. I'm just putting up there the slide of the um, UN Global um, Development Goals. If you're not familiar with them, it'd be really good, perhaps Google them when you get home or take a look at them. They're really important, they'd be well thought out. Every single one of them really collapses into one of the six uh, levers, if you like, that I've offered for um, how Marwell does its business. Um, so for example, what have we got there? Yeah, fighting poverty, zero hunger, health and well-being, or other good health and well-being, quality education, we talked about education and populations, uh, gender equality, clean water and sanitation, affordable clean energy, decent work and economic growth, industry innovation and infrastructure, probably the one that has a little bit of odds with the six I spoke about, reduced inequalities, sustainable cities and communities, responsible consumption, climate action, life below water, life above it, peace, justice, strong institutions, and partnerships for those goals. So they're really, really important. And it's something I think that we could all um, align ourselves with, certainly. So that's really, folks, me done. I think in conclusion, what I've tried to do is talk a little bit about the climate crisis, but I've tried to position it within that wider aspect of biodiversity and how we are ruining the world. I've offered you six 
sort of pillars that Marwell are using to, to evaluate that through. So climate change, distribution of wealth, feeding the 10 billion, insecurity, emerging disease, our own health and well-being. Um, I think where Christians, we can make a real difference is that historically, you know, scientists and those that have tried to create change have said, well, if you tell people stuff, if you give them the knowledge and you give them the benefit of what they're missing, if we destroy it, people are sensible enough to draw the dots together and create change. Well, we know that doesn't happen. We have very, very powerful counter incentives, which basically if it's inconvenient, we don't do it. Or if it's gonna cost us a bit, we won't do it. We're not gonna give up you know, jam today for the promise of something better tomorrow. Perhaps that is part of how we are fashioned as people, going back to um, how we live our lives many hundreds of thousands of years ago, I don't know. So I think the way forward is we have got to approach this from a values-based uh, point of view. And again, as Christians, I think that's something which we can really do. If we can understand the values of how we want to live our lives, what is right, and many of those points here Sorry. Many of these points here are things that as a Christians we can all identify with and see why they make sense to, to contemporary living. Actually, the solution to those we can find in nature. If we get those things right back with, the, back with biodiversity, we can have these things. Then we'll have change. Ladies and gentlemen, that's it. Thank you very much for